you're not going to be a musician. That's <laughs> what he said to me. And I said, what do you mean? I'm really good. I'm really good, dad. Like, you know, I'm better than everybody in this, this stupid little town. I'm good. No, you're, what's going to end up is you're going to be working for me someday, fixing copy machines. You know, that's what all the guys that work for me are, are these guys who are gigging at night and, you know, putting toner in <laughs> during the day. And he told me that. And then he died a year later, a year and a half later of pancreatic cancer. So it, it, it was, um, I think if he didn't pass away, I'd probably be in San Francisco um, in some band being like, dude, what's up? Fucking weed. I'm going to make it, bro. <laughs> like, I probably would have been that guy. Okay, what is better than talking to someone who's absolutely infected by what they do? Who who's so deeply, deeply passionate about really whatever that is that you get pulled in and excited too. It's always such a fun conversation. You know, there's, there's a real genuine sense of purpose and importance that you get from people like that. They're just like locked into the journey for good or for bad. They're glued to that roller coaster no matter what. And that really does describe Pete Galley to a T. Pete manages bands, and not just any bands, but popular alternative bands like The Bravery, Andrew WK, The Airborne Toxic Event, In the Valley Below. In case you haven't heard of these performers, the folks that he manages have been on Conan O'Brien, on Letterman. They've headlined at huge music festivals like Coachella and Lollapalooza and Austin City Limits. They're Grammy award-winning artists who have opened for big acts like U2, Depeche Mode, and Green Day. The point is, Pete knows his stuff. He knows how to grow bands from seedling to sequoia. And more than anything, he's a driven passionate, funny, and overall just great guy. This episode is brought to you by my strung out, lead singer-like, wreck the hotel room level of addiction to listener emails. Oh sure, I've gotten a few hits from those of you who've dropped me a line at samatgrowbigalways.com, but I'm asking the rest of you to feed my addiction. Be an enabler. It's true. To me, getting those kinds of emails from listeners are like big, glorious lines of cocaine. I snort into the cockles of my heart. So hook a brother up. Now, this is where you should think, oh, he's talking to me, Mr. Thaddeus McCullough here in Hoboken, New Jersey, driving to Taco Bell, not some other listener. And then... That's where you take a momentary break from doing your second squat or from tenderizing your, your chicken breasts and fire off a note so that I know that you're still alive. I mean, mom is worried. Wear a jacket. Okay, anyway, enough with that. I'm really excited to share this conversation with the great Pete Galley. I think you're going to really love it. This is Grow Big Always. I'm Sam Lawrence. Okay, so Petey, 
Mr. Pitsky. Yes. So, you know, I, I pressed record and then I fucked this thing up. And, and, and so I, I'm, we're having to do this beginning part again. That's all right. But I'm uh, so sorry about that. So what, here's what I was asking you. Okay. You, you, uh, you are someone that I know that is in an industry that I don't know jack shit about. And what I was saying was <laughs> that um, I, uh, I have this kind of idea in my head of what you do. And so I want to ask you if this is what, what it's like and you tell me if it's right okay. or not. Okay. So I have this point of view that, that it's that people who play for a living, like they're actors or musicians, they're sports folks. They, um, they kind of have arrested development because they're doing things that we do that are very play oriented as, as young people or kids, mm -hmm. and then they do it professionally for money, and they're so intoxicated by that play that that's all they want to do for a living. And they, and because they're so good at that one thing, they just can't actually, you know, manage the business mm -hmm. end of things. And you, as a band manager, mm -hmm. have to come in and wrangle all these goats that don't know shit about like anything other than playing music mm -hmm. in your case. So would you say that's a fair? Very fair, I think. It's, um, yeah, it's very fair because that's all they should really worry about. And and it's a whole nother mindset to to have to deal with the money and the marketing and all that stuff. So um, I, I, there is a difference between the arts and sports. So. And so that that is a, it, it's a different mindset, at least as a manager, I think, because sports is you're trying to be the best athlete as you can and in the arts you're usually doing with creative minds that it's all about being creative oh i see so it's it's a different mindset i just feel like um hmm. even though in this case you can kind of lump them together they're about as opposite as possible usually in a in a um a mindset i don't think athletes are are that creative minded they're really naturally gifted in one way as right. artists are too and they're probably it's probably in some ways more collaborative than artists <laughs> yeah well yeah they, they need each other yeah they do they need each other and and there's trainers and, but in in music there's music producers and yeah. your your yeah. band members and all yeah. kind of things so it can be collaborative too right so so i mean so is our people are how would you typify um people in in music when you when you, when you think of them in your head, is it kind of like, wow, these people are really great at music and they just, and that's all that they can do? The real deal people are. Yeah. I mean, I think there's, the people who have long lasting careers are usually, well, I look at it like this. I look at it like when you go to a, a gallery or a museum and you look at a painting, the average person goes, wow, I could never do that. And that's their first reaction. And why do you like that? Because I could never do that. They're, they're touching me some way in some uh, emotional way. I could never do that. And usually the people who do that see the world a different way and are usually completely off kilter. Right, yeah. <laughs> and that's, why, that's what makes them see the world a different way and makes them create art a different way is because if you just made normal looking art that anybody else can do, it wouldn't be that special. So um, part of my job is is not just the business. Um, music management is dealing with the personalities, motivating them. Um, it's dealing with the business, of course, but it's also putting a five-year, 10-year game plan together, one-year, six-month game plan together and executing it. And what 
Remember that show Queer Eye for the Straight Guy? Yes, I used to love that show. I love that show because what was great about that show was they would come in and they wouldn't tell someone to change their whole thing. They said, this is what's great about your style and this is kind of what's bad Mm -hmm. and let's accentuate the best. And that's what I kind of do. And I do one thing very specifically and that's, that's develop brand new musicians. Oh, interesting. And, and that's a really weird skill set to have. I didn't know I had it. I just thought that's what everybody tried to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do that and, and also in a very specific genre of music. So um, that that is a, that's a real weird art in itself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and trying to motivate someone and everybody wants everything now. You know, so even even artists are like, how come I'm not playing Wembley Arena now, damn it? They you don't know? understand that there's like um, stages to things. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, they don't they don't understand that that it it's the patience and the and the growth and that you're not there yet. And and there is a sports analogy. It's you know like a baseball player's coming out of high school and you get drafted and you got to go play in the minor leagues and you got to work your way up and and that's in in music in music too. But every once in a while, there's a freak of nature who's just so naturally talented right. that you know that it's a unicorn, as yeah. we say in tech. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So right. it it, it uh, that happens, but that's a rare one. Uh, so you know, and, and actually to make an analogy, um, in tech, there are CEOs. And companies also, but specifically CEOs who are early, you know, founding CEOs, early stage CEOs are focused on just trying to get the product and the market to fit together. Mm-hmm. And then there's CEOs that come in a little bit later. And uh, and it may be the same CEO, by yep. the way, but but there's people who specialize um, in, okay, now now that that's been established and there's a business here and and, and, and this has been proven, yep. this is how we can, you know. Amplify it. Yeah, yeah scale yeah. this thing yeah. out and yeah. blah, blah, blah. And so in music, uh, and music similar. management, is it? Yeah, yeah there's there's it's very similar, um, the skill sets of these guys. And there's the big managers who try to come in and, and poach the thing after the fact. And um, there's the young younger guys or the guys who are the first, tier, which I kind of fall in. Um, and, um, yeah, that it, it exists, but there's a real, I think what's happening is in management, uh, there used to be real development and with record labels and everything back in the day. And now it's fall completely on the shoulders of managers. Um, which is interesting because labels don't have the money to spend and they used to, you know, sign 20 artists and one would make money for them, but that one would make money for them would pay for signing 20. Now they're signing six instead. And, and they're, they're, they'd rather spend more money on something that's already got momentum Hmm. than try to develop something from day one. So I see there's a real big gap right now to go sign things very early and develop it the right way. Hmm. Um, I'd rather sign things very early and be in, in kind of like overseeing it than trying to sign something that's already got bad habits and gone the wrong way. And that's, yeah. that's tougher for me. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. In the venture community, you know, there are, there are in tech, back to tech, I mean, there's people who invest just in those early stage things and that's their sweet spot. Yeah. And then there's what you're talking about, like, hey, I'm only going to come in once this thing's yeah. proven and we only write checks from this to this yeah. and we only participate like this. And so what you're saying is, is that music, because of all the disruption that's happened and and, and all the squeezes, mm-hmm. squeezing that's gone on over the last mm-hmm. 15, 20 years, um, is really kind of like there's no bottom end, really, because um, everybody can now kind of get on and do stuff and it's much cheaper yeah. down in there. And they only want to bet on stuff that are known things and yeah. they don't want to put their money down in, in the Yeah, in the they, my part. analogy is like uh, f- a football field and you 
it used to, there used to be a football field and getting on the field was the toughest part. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, if you score a touchdown, you score a touchdown. But now anybody can get on the field, but the touchdown is 500 times longer than it used to be. <laughs> right. So, so, and it's the, the days of bottlenecking uh, media are over and there's certain media that still, there's a one or two pieces of media that still are completely bottlenecked because any band can put their music up on Spotify or now, you know, Apple Music or whatever and, and get heard and whatever, get on playlists and stuff. But it doesn't really move the needle like it used to. The reason it moved the needle before because it was really difficult and, and it was so bottlenecked. Now anybody can just listen to anything anytime. So the key is still trying to get to that bottleneck at some level or another. And, and um, the next level is that. Is like, and that's where the, the big boys come in once you get through that bottleneck. Like, ooh, all right. And like, I'm going to jump in on that. So it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's ever-changing. And in two years, this podcast will be completely, like what I'm talking about right now, you'll, I'll laugh about it. You right. know? <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 yeah but you, I mean, you guys know that more than anybody. You know? For sure yeah. in tech, yeah. So what, now, in, in music... Um, and management, sorry, are you, are you, how much are you dealing with like personality content of bands, you know, in these early stage bands Everything. versus like, oh, let's plan out, you know, the, the business Everything. end. It's, it's all of it. Yeah. I think it's, I think the easiest way to think of it is like, you're the CEO of the company uh -huh. and these guys are the owners. They're the kooky owners that created something. Uh -huh. And I have to oversee the marketing plan. I have to oversee their personalities and make sure they're creating and not, and put them in the best situations possible to create. Um, I come up a lot of the times with the game plan for how to roll things out. Mm -hmm. um, and then you work with all of your specialists and all the, so there's a booking agent who books shows for you. Um, managers can't legally book shows. It's a, there's a law against it. So you have a booking agent and those booking agents do only do that. There's, in, in a really easy way to think about it, there's five sources of income for a musician. There is master recordings, so your recorded music, which is barely anything anymore. Okay. Um, that's what a record label used to sign you for. Right. There are, is touring, ticket sales. Okay. There's merchandise, t-shirts and everything. There's endorsements. And then there's publishing if you write the music, which is the little dirty secret of the music industry. It's like intellectual property of music is, and that's a kind of dirty secret that still makes a lot of money. And, um, and so I oversee all of it and managers only make money if the artist makes money. So hmm. manager is really the only person that the artist can trust because everyone else is making it from one of the five income sources I and see. they're the specialist in charge of that. So the booking agent's only making from live shows. The booking agent doesn't make any money on t-shirts or publishing. So they w are pushing their live show things all the time. And a manager sometimes uh, playing a show some is not maybe not the best look for the band in the long term or doing something, but they're pushing because it's a lot of money and you have to say no to those things and they get upset because it's like, you know, they don't get their 10% or something. So you have to, you have to think big picture I, I, at least I do, because I want to have bands that have careers. Yeah. And so, you know, and, and some bands, you know, that's going to be a flash in the pan. So you make as much money as you can right now, but I don't work with those kind of things. So, so are there people who do that? that just look at like, oh, this is, yeah, of course, these are, yeah. yeah, these are just pops. I'm going to specialize in shorting all of this stuff. Yeah. And now I'm looking over here. These people. Yeah. And, all the and so for you, you're, you're more in the, I'm trying to find something that's going to have staying power. Mm -hmm. That's early. Mm -hmm. That 
is what are the other specialties like that you look for? Um, I mean, I started doing this because I didn't want to work a day job. I mean, I went to music school and I was a musician and bands and got a songwriting scholarship and all that stuff. And then realized that, realized that I was that not you that, sucked at music. That, not that talented. Yeah. <laughs> when you're sitting in the, one of the best music schools in the world, there's a guy from Chile next to you and a guy from Australia and they smoke you when you're 18 years old, you realize very quickly yeah. that, um, <clears throat> that you're, that's going to be hard to, yeah. <laughs> to duke that out. But yeah. then you find this like, niche of knowing music and being able to communicate with musicians and they know and what's really interesting is you know a, a band can go play in front of thousands of people walk off stage and everyone backstage will tell them how great the show is no one says ah it was all right no one tells them that right right and and then they look at me you know the next day and say okay how how was it really like what do we need to prove on and and that is a real important thing just that's the, that's maybe a metaphor for the whole thing but um that's what managers are there for too, is to make sure that you, you can't really trust the truth anybody. is told. Yeah. Truth is told because everyone's stroking your ego all the time. Yeah. Telling you how great you are. And so the really good managers have, have communication with their artists to be able to like put them on the straight path to doing the right thing. Yeah. That you know? makes sense. Yeah. I mean, uh, how, how much corrupt, I mean, I also have this thing in my head, I think probably because of movies or whatever, just how much corruption there is overall as soon as you not know, anymore i mean i think it used to be and i think it's become a corporate you know and it's just a business. you know there's there's guys that i know that were old managers and after a show it was cash and they go into a hotel room take out a suitcase of cash dump it on on this is a true story on on the on the bed and then go mm, put their arm down the middle and go Okay, this is to you, the promoter. Oh, this is the, like, you know, it's just, that's how it was. But now everything, it's like, you know, it, tickets are all scanned and everything's there and you have your pre, you have your pre-tickets of what, mm-hmm. what you've done pre-order and what you've done. On, yeah. Oh, it's, it's everyone's hold accountable and everyone's taking their piece and it's, there's no, and if you're an asshole, it's too small. Everything's become so small. If you're an asshole, you're going to get blown out unless you're too big, unless you're just too massive and old school. There's still the old school guys that are assholes, but. The younger guys, I don't think there's any room to be an asshole or maniac, you know? That makes a lot of sense. I think that you're right. Almost all industries have moved into that world, you know, where it's too small. There's all the accountability. You can't hide from any of that stuff anymore. But the music industry still has this this sense of danger that people... I managed a band um, 10, was about 11 years ago that blew up kind of overnight. Uh-huh. Can you say who it was? Yeah, it's a band called The Bravery. Okay. And The Bravery um, still sort of exists in some capacity if they want to be the band. But everyone, they were, they were there's about four bands that came out at one time that was kind of a movement in music. And it was Franz Ferdinand, The Killers, and The Bravery were kind of all those bands together. And The Bravery was the one that got, was kind of the crest of the wave, um, even though they were I heard their music and started managing before I ever heard the other bands. And maybe they were the first because their music was recorded the first, but they came out third of those three and the killers were exploding. And so, um, the killers and Franz Ferdinand were on indie labels that gave them a shot. And then the thing blew up. And then we were the band that took the big record deal and became the big band and became kind of an overnight thing. It got kind of shoved down everybody's throat, um, which kind of hurt us also, but they, were young, you know, they were 22, 23, live in New York City, 
and they were da- they were a dangerous band. You would hang out with them. When I go around the world, and, I, and then they say, who do you manage? And I say, well, I manage uh, the Airborne Talks event. And the people go, oh, I love that band. Great songwriter, great band. Who else? I manage Andrew WK. Oh, my God, this guy, he's like a... He's like a renaissance man. He does all this crazy stuff. He's amazing. I manage the bravery. And everybody doesn't say anything. They put their hand on my shoulder and they said, oh my God, I had the craziest night of my life with that band. Because they were crazy. And, really? And, yeah, and that was their whole thing. I mean, and, and they just did it because they were young. And, and three months before, they, they were wearing eye makeup because they were trying to get models to see their show in New York. That's why, that was like the reason for being a band. <laughs> it was about as genuine as you can get, right? And then, you Skyliner know. Skyliner and then the, I'm in. Yeah, the whole thing. Yeah. And, you know, this is 2004. And um, and you go from selling 100 tickets to 5,000 tickets in a year. And you have a top five album in England and top five single in England. And you're playing all the biggest festivals in the world. And you're, you know, there's girls waiting for you in the Singapore airport with with roses. I mean, it's just cuckoo. I mean, and so... Is this the part where they go, oh, we've outgrown you, dude. We're like too big now. Did they, does no, that kind of stuff no, happen? No, They were too lubricated to ever do that. <laughs> <laughs> but they are... I mean, the thing is, I love... They they were the first band that I ever kind of broke. Uh, and, and I managed them before they played their first show. I, I saw them rehearse and the drummer gave me a demo and I heard Honest Mistake and I went down to New York and I was living in Boston at the time. and uh, And so... That was my baby. That was the first one that I really sunk my teeth into, and um, it was a wild ride. But you know, you know, there's one guy who's the songwriter. He's very creative, and he's he's the real deal. And the guys in the band were the real deal. Great musicians. I mean, the drummers since play with Morrissey and Weezer, and like you know, he's re- they're real musicians. And at first, people thought they were just some good-looking dudes from New York that were you know were parting their asses off. But actually, they're actually the real deal. Because anything great will last a test of time. And right now I'm hearing the bravery on the radio all the time and they haven't put out a record in six years. <laughs> so wow. it's a weird, anyway. That's very but, cool. Yeah. That's very cool. So, um, so it's not like, I mean, that whole, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm getting in fights and blowing all my money on toys and eating too many pills and. No, um, no, that's true. <laughs> because I mean, why wouldn't you? You're 23 years old, and you you were working at Starbucks six months ago, and now you're like, there's girls waiting for you backstage to give soap you down in the shower. You yeah. know, like I mean, yeah. why wouldn't you? Like it's it's like, and you're like, this may all end. Why not? Yeah, that doesn't happen to me at 24 Hour Fitness when I step out of the shower. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so so I mean, is is there a little bit? Because I, I you know, in tech, it's I mean, it's a lot of parallels here. It's interesting. You, you hit that one perfect, it's almost like anything. It's like the perfect golf swing or something. And you yeah. just end up chasing the dragon. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, yeah. you're like, oh God, I can't believe it. I had this hockey stick moment. Like you're talking about, yeah. you're doing 500 tickets and you're doing 5,000 tickets. Yeah. And, and, it's, and it's like a drug. You just get addicted to it. I mean, tech, yeah. that's why I think, you know, getting something off the ground and raising oh, yeah. money and trying to get that thing going. And it's just this high, yeah. you know, that you yeah. get addicted to. And is yeah. it, I presume there's a similar addiction. It's completely, completely for me. Yeah. And, and it's a roller coaster. I mean, it is brutal. And, and I'm really close, emotional, emotional about my pants. Yeah. So it's, it is personal. Yeah. I can't help it. And people say it's business. I'm not like that. I'm sorry. It's personal. And when, you put everything into it. Everything. I mean, you put, you know, and there's, I've had a couple of failures. There's a band I managed from England that I thought was, 
you know, the guy is maybe one of the best singers alive and I couldn't get the thing up and running and it was just really sad. Why do, why do you blame, why do you see that as your failure? Because I knew what the problems were and I didn't have the balls to tell them. Mm. You mean you knew this is the problem with whatever is going on in the band or what's yeah. going on, going on and, and, and I, you just were intimidated or something. I chicken shit it out. Yeah. <laughs> I, hey man. I've done it. I've done it many times. And, and there's a couple situations I'm in right now that I, I, I like have to man up and, and have a really hard conversation hmm. with someone who, I'm, and it's a very emotional thing as a manager because you sit there and you're like, I have to have this hard conversation with, with an artist and that artist is, you know, very emotional because they're an artist right. <laughs> and they're very creative and you have to, you know, have the right moment and it can't be, it can't be just off the cuff. You have to can't like, be like a sit down. It has to be a sit down and they, it, they have to be basically ready to ask you what you think they should do. That's the moment. That's, I learned that years ago. Let them, let them. What if they don't come to you though? What if they're just like living in denial like most people and they don't? Yeah, then that's, that's, uh, you have to like sit them down and be like, okay, we have to have a real, real conversation. It is, it's really hard for me because I, I, I really like these people. I have a lot of respect for these people. And, and, and then, you know, they also pay your mortgage. So you're sitting there like, I'm about to tell someone something that they do not want to hear. And it's completely my opinion. I don't have any fact uh, that's backing me on this. But yeah. they've trusted me in the first place and I've helped them. I've been part of the team that's helped them get to a certain level. But that moment of like having to like, oh my God, I got to tell someone something so difficult that they're not going to like about their art. That is, a, that is a really tough moment. Um, Do you find that those moments are moments that in some way you always knew were the, like you, you met the band or you met these people or whatever? It could be one person or just their, them as a collective. And there's something in your belly button that was like, man, I can't, I can't put my finger on it right now, but there's like, there's a few things here, but you know what? I'm just going to kind of like, there's all this other stuff. And then it, the thing you end up sitting down with them about ends up connecting to that something unsaid in the beginning. beginning thing. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I think it's a lot easier at the beginning just to be blunt with them because you're not as emotionally involved. There's not a lot of money at stake. And the money's not really, money's never really been a motivator for me. So it's, it's, it's not really that, but it's, it's less investment. Yeah. Hmm? It's yeah. less investment. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and you're, you're, you've spent years in this thing and all of a sudden it's come to this thing where you, they can, they're at the fork in the road and you think they're going to take the wrong fork and you got to be like, like, we got to talk about this, you know? And I've been doing it long enough to be able to predict my prediction uh, i have a high <laughs> yeah. high percentage of <laughs> knowing what yeah my radar is really good yeah of what will happen if you do this this and this and sometimes people haven't listened to me and it's happened and it's also unmotivating for a manager when they decide to not take your um advice when you know and there's times where i've like mm, i don't know like maybe they might be right so we try it and it's fine but there's times where i'm like oh no this is a mistake this is a huge mistake so, I mean, is it like a cobbler's shoes thing where, the you know, the chef that's an amazing chef at work when he goes to home makes himself like a Swanson's TV dinner thing? I mean, when, when you think about your own relationships, you know, your marriage that you, I know you used to be married, um, some of that other stuff, like that whole let's sit down and have this 
super honest conversation and, 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 and it's something you didn't do as much at home because yeah, you were doing do it, it everywhere well, at no, work? I just, or is it I've just... always been really bad at it. Okay. And, and that's my, that's huh. been, that's been a really tough thing for me to get over. And I think. So that, even in your personal life, you're, you're bad I at couldn't, it. Yeah. I think that I can take responsibility for that being part of the reason of my marriage not working. Yeah. Which is really sad. Yeah. I think if I would have done it years and years ago and said, we have to be honest with each other. We need to have this X, Y, and Z and be like brutally honest with each other. Um, it, it maybe would have ended, it w maybe wouldn't have ended, but that would have been years and years ago. It just, right. it just was. You have to do it, like you said, up front, even with the bands, you have to kind of establish that case. Yeah, and, and I think some of that's happened with some of my artists too. I, 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 I wish I could have been, well, and sometimes you don't know it's happening when it's happening. That's the problem. It's like, it's tough. It, it hits you after like, oh shit. Like, I can't believe we're in this, situation right now you mean like when you're at the airport and they go there's gonna be a delay for an hour and then they delay it again and they delay it again and before you know it, it's been eight hours yeah. and you're like what the fuck this has been eight yeah. hours i would have never signed up for this yeah like exactly that. exactly and because huh. you're like oh it's just another hour right and then it tags tags on another one and time yeah that's that's the thing that's that's a weakness that i've learned about myself in the last couple months huh. that, that i have that i would have to work on is it I, the thing is i'm aware of things uh -huh. but it's being able to like really go, okay, this is really going to affect the long-term situation and trying to deal with it. You know, it's funny. I, I've known that about myself too. And um, after my last marriage and into this marriage, one of the things that I said was like, okay, I'm going to just practice. Because I, I used to just lie a lot in my last marriage. I just would just lie because it was so much easier to just... Yeah say what the other person wants to hear and not get yeah. into something. And yeah. it's like you said, all those habits. It's... And so this time I was like, okay, I'm going to practice uncomfortable levels of honesty. <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> and, yeah. And I've done that, but um, it's number one, it's been hard to keep up. And number two, uh, well, there's three things that number two is, you know, it's great because you get addicted to it. It's like a drug. Like you just start almost like you get addicted to lying. You get addicted <sighs> to telling the truth. Yeah. But the tricky part is that I'm not as the finesse you were talking about where it's like you've got to find a way to make sure yeah. <laughs> that what you're communicating is palatable. Palatable. Yeah. Yeah. That it meets the atmosphere mm -hmm. and it doesn't blow up when you try to blow the yeah. spaceship into it. Yeah. And that part, I'm like, I'm less good at that even with my kids. Like, they know when I'm going to sit down and have a conversation yeah. with them and all that yeah. stuff. It's just not natural feeling. Well, it's. I think artists are different. I think it's a different personality. And, and they're naturally uh, performers. I think that's maybe even more of a specific type. If you go on stage and have to perform in, in front of thousands of people, and you're the kind of personality that gets off on getting on mm -hmm. stage in front of thousands of people, you're naturally really insecure. It's what it is. It's, it's you're like, <gasps> and, and that gets you off because the performing of that, I mean, I, you're naturally, all these guys are very insecure and I get why. And that's what, that's what kind of leads them to that. And, and uh, one of my best friends is a painter and talking to him about things is a completely different mindset. It's absolutely different. And it is, you get the same sort of like touchy-feely insecurity about their art 
and trying to push the envelope and make great art and, and do the right thing. And they hate what they've done so far. Yeah, yeah. Like, that. oh yeah. my God, that stuff from two years ago, it's, it's embarrassing. It's like, uh, no, it's really good. Right. <laughs> you know, that stuff, you know, that, that's, <laughs> now, side note, every artist I've ever dealt with, even him, the newest stuff is the greatest. <laughs> oh, you see that thing I did two days ago? It's the best. Can you imagine ever. though having a conversation with them where you're like, dude, that stuff I did eight years ago was my best stuff. Yeah. Everything I'm doing now is yeah. not good. Yeah. Well, no, some guy, <laughs> what happens then is when, once things have like a couple failures have happened, they start thinking that way. So you gotta like, you know, it's, uh, it, there's a lot going on there, yeah. but um, I forget where we're going, but the, 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 oh, so he's not a performer. Right. So there's a, it, there's this, ama- you know, the last thing he wants to do is like- he, Get up in front of a crowd. Yeah, oh man, like an opening night of one of his shows. He's like, oh, you know, like I have to talk to people, you know. They're like, introverted. Yeah, yeah, and that's why he's a painter. Yeah. So it's, a, it's interesting to, to hang out with him because he still has that thing that really draws me, the creative sense and the like thing, but then he's not, he doesn't want to be on stage. So, um, so what is it about a performer that they get all of this juice, this all like part of it is this, uh, collecting the crowd energy and standing up there. And I mean, is it like you're saying it's, it's a, um, self-confidence problem, but is it, is it also just like a, Oh, um, they love it. I mean, yeah. it's a drug. It's a drug. I mean, a drug. It's, it's everything. I, I yeah. shouldn't say it's negative. I shouldn't say it's, I think it's a very positive thing. But it's it's also how can you not be self-conscious? Five thousand people are hanging on every one of your words. You know, like how can you not like? But and then you you how can you not have an ego? You're going up there and like doing it. So there's this, there's you almost a, have to have one as a shield. You have to. You'd oh. be too vulnerable. Oh, otherwise. you're you're complete. And the greatest the greatest guys show the vulnerability on stage. That's when, or the like. The, what's an example of that? Um. I manage some performer. I manage uh, some really great performers, and and two guys come to mind. One is Andrew WK, who I think is one of the most unique and truly original. The word original doesn't really exist, I don't think, because you're a derivative of something. Right. I don't know what he's a derivative of. I don't. His whole art is making you feel a certain way. That's his art. So he wants to make you feel, he wants everything around. He, if you ask him, who would you compare yourself to? He would say Santa Claus. <laughs> uh, because he's like, it, it's, it's a feeling of joy when you see this person. He has an outfit that he wears. You can close your eyes. You know what he looks like. And his whole purpose is to um, make you feel a certain way. And he's a, yeah, he's a technician and makes some um, toys, but he also comes to your house and brings you joy. And, and there's like this, you know, he has this whole thing about it and he says that. Huh. Um, but as a performer, I've seen him be very vulnerable on stage and he comes off stage and I said, man, after that one song, that thing, when you pulled that kid up on stage and you had that conversation with him, man, that was unbelievable. And he's like, I don't remember anything. <laughs> he doesn't remember it all. I mean, he's like wow. in the moment as a performer. It's and. And I saw him before wow. he was, um, you know, he was one artist that did not develop he, like from the beginning. Um, he was a musician first, but um, before he kind of become, he's become all these other things. But I saw his very first tour and I had a band open for him in, in the first couple of shows. And I, I've never seen a performer like literally sacrifice his body or sacrifice his, he just, he just went nonstop for 40, 
50 minutes, 60 minutes physically on stage. And I was, was blown away by this guy. And so when we sat down, um, he, he um, let his old manager go. And one of the guys on his team called me and said, you're a huge NRWK fan. I said, oh, man, I'm massive. I think that guy's one of the best performers I've ever seen. I got on a plane in New York the next day. We had dinner. And I said to him, I want to manage you like Arnold Schwarzenegger in 1982. And he looked at me like, what does that mean? I said, you're one of the few people I've ever seen that can do anything you want. Anything. He's just such a likable guy, personality-wise. People love you. And you just have this thing about you. I want to do everything with you. And so we, I said, put music aside for a second and do everything. So TV, he's got book deals and a kid's TV show that was very successful on Cartoon Network. I mean, it's gone bananas with him. And we just, we're doing a kid's book deal right now. Um, he's got a, uh, you know, and then he's got his village voice column, advice column every week. That is huge. He's got his own radio show now. I mean, it's gone crazy. And so that whole thing was, he felt free of not just being a musician. And that was a huge thing. But uh, so anyway, but, but as a performer, also the airborne talks event, I saw the lead singer in front of 5,000 people and they, they didn't realize that at the time his father was not well. Um, this was last October and he played the Greek in, in mm -hmm. LA and he started the band about eight blocks away from the Greek in a small little studio apartment that he lived in. That's where he started the band. And so he just he told this story that was just so amazing. It's like I started a band and it was just so vulnerable. Like it, and because he, I started a band, you know, five blocks away from here. And if someone said I'd be headlining the Greek and so, selling 5,000 tickets and my father would be sitting, looking at me in the eighth row right now. And, and he told this story about his father, how he was broke living in that place. And his father used to send him money because his, his dad would go to the track and say, I caught a horse today, Mick. <laughs> and then he told the story and he's like, I know that. And he said this to the whole crowd. I know you didn't catch a horse. You know, I know you're just trying to send me money, make it up some excuse. And, and it was just like, he had people in the palm of his hands telling these stories on stage. Wow. This is a musician, you know, yeah. this is like, you know, he's an unbelievable writer and songwriter. And those moments, what people remember from shows are not how well you executed a song. This is what going to music school, the music dorks never get it. They're like, man, I played that riff perfectly. I did that jazz solo perfectly. It's not about that. It's about the things that you remember are the, uh, like, the things, the unexpected. Right. You know, the kid jumping on stage to talk to Andrew on stage, and he has this banter with him, or Mikel telling a story about this song about his father that he's about to play, or... All the unplanned things. Yeah, that's yeah. what makes it special. Yep. Um, and so... It's like I had my first wedding, I remember, though. <laughs> Such a weird memory, but the wedding planner or something was like... I was really stressed out because my parents had to get divorced and they're going to be there. And, oh, wow. and she was just like, well, you know, it's, if, the, if everything goes exactly the way you think, you're not going to remember anything. It's the part where like, oh, they sit next to each other and they had to move their chairs around and there was this thing that happened mm -hmm. or that thing that happened. That's going to be all the stuff that you remember. Yeah. And that's actually, you're right. That is all the yeah. stuff that you remember. And the other thing is uh, that when you go to a live performance, which is a dying I think it's, a, maybe I'm just too old, but I think it's kind of a dying thing now because the availability of everything is so there, right? Yeah. Like you're not used to having, you're used to hearing the perfect thing played, yeah. you know, through your yeah. headphones or yeah. whatever, right? Mm -hmm. But when you're there and there is someone up on, there's a person standing there and you can feel the human thing going mm -hmm. on and there's like... It's way more special. It is, and it just dies right there too. It's born and it dies yeah. in that space. Well, what's really interesting... This is a total side note tangent, but 
the Airborne Toxic event, I think, have become such a big live band, and why people love them so much, is you don't know what he's going to... He calls out... He, he's old school. He's called... The set list, people love to get the set list and then compare what they actually played, because he'll just throw... He's feeling the room, and he just does it, and he's like a Springsteen kind of character. That's, That's what's amazing. And the other thing is, everything is so pre-recorded. Everyone uses this this technology, this Ableton, which is Ableton Live, which is a, which is a software, and... and you can even program your light show to Ableton. So you hit a button and then you have the light show, you have the sounds, you have the backing vocals come out. And, what, and so there's a band that I'm involved with developing out of London right now. And, and they're total musos and they're unbelievable. What's a muso? Like a purist. Oh, okay. Like, right? Yep. And they're like, we're not playing with backing tracks. We're not, how could we play? That's, 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 that's cheating ourselves, you know? And I'm like, um, you're going to get smoked. <laughs> you're gonna get smoked at festivals because you just won't sound as big and that's what sucks now is you have to adapt uh-huh. and like you're People gonna have go, an expectation that it's gonna be a certain tightness around everything and that, massiveness what right. happens you go to these festivals and the low end is just pumping and the and then you go on with your gu- little guitar amp and your telecaster and, <laughs> like, beep, 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 and it's like <laughs> and you sound like a little wimp like next to him so uh-huh. you i'm like it's it's almost impossible now in the festival world to be able to pull off playing 100% real. I don't, no one does. It, it, you, people would be surprised. I had a band open for U2. U2 has four dudes under the under the stage playing keyboards and whatever. It's live, but huh. you know, and everybody plays with tracks. Everybody. That's so interesting. Yeah, everything's moved to that. So now the now we all just... But that's, 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 that's the become baseline. the level. Yeah. yeah. And so so what happens is when you go, people are like, hmm, I don't know why this band just isn't as good as the band before. I don't, I don't get it. And it's like, yeah, because you're not feeling it in your ball sack. <laughs> because the low end's not there, you know? Because it's so much low. That's usually the problem with most things. If you don't feel it in your ball sack. It's all about the ball sack. It right? is. It is. That's what I have on my lower back tattoo. <laughs> I don't know about the placement there, but, you know. Yeah, I know. Yeah, that, was, that was a long time ago. You have a tramp stamp of yeah. lower ball tattoo. Right. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah, the guy that was putting it on there was like, you sure you want it on the back, huh? <laughs> Anyway, um, so so that's freaking super interesting. And, you know, usually, like, I'm so fascinated to learn about this stuff because it's something I don't know. And at the same mm-hmm. time, it's also familiar to me because it's mapped so, so closely yeah. to how startup companies mm-hmm. operate and how the baselines are constantly changing. The problem and how is there's no money to be made in uh, what we do. In music? <laughs> in music. <laughs> well, you know, and it's also, I mean, that said... Uh, there's not that much money in truth to be made in tech. I mean, it's one of these things that right now is glamorized in the same way that... Yeah, that's true, I guess. The same way that music was glamorized yeah, for right. a really long time. And, you know, it's a, the road is littered with people who who think they're going to make the NBA. And, yeah. you know, they yeah. end up just playing high school basketball and yep. throwing their knee out. Yep. Um, so what, what keeps you... Like when... Here's a question. So based on the stories you just told me, it seems like the band that is going to work with you wants to feel like you have a personal, emotional, um, sure, you can do the job, but there's some connection to what they do specifically. Mm-hmm. And that's the reason why they're going to get fired up about you more than most things is that true yeah or is and it I because usually, of, you did the bravery and you did this and that okay or is, is that it well too? that's sometimes like your way into some things and they like they like the artists that you worked with and that's your way in you might have an upper hand with some against someone else but i think the thing that 
the artists I work with will tell me is that I came up with some crazy scheme. <laughs> <laughs> I came up with some crazy marketing thing. Um, with the bravery, it was all about these residencies <clears throat> and where they would play every Thursday night in New York. They broke New York in 2004 by playing every Thursday night at Arlene's Grocery in the Lower East Side at, at 10 o'clock. And it was 120 capacity and they blew them all out and they had supermodels there and dudes were like, what's going on? There's hot chicks there. And then the band became like this New York thing. And then we did it in London in November and we broke London. And then, and then a year later we had a top five album, debut album. And then the thing, it, it, it was like, there are these things that work and, you know, I've seen it work with other bands, or, but I've done my own thing with it or um, we did it with, with, Airborne Toxic event, we kind of broke England off this idea of doing 30 shows in 30 days. And the reason came from English bands can't handle touring America. They freak out. Okay. Because you, the longest possible drive you can have in England is Lon <laughs> London, London to Glasgow. And it's eight hours. Right. And, the, and they're like, oh, we're playing San Diego today and we've got to play San Francisco tomorrow. How, how far off the drive is it? I'm like, oh, it's 10, 10 hours probably. 10, are you kidding me? Okay. And then, and then, you know, so, so I'm like, yeah, it's the size of California is England and American bands are like, Oh, we got what a 12 hour drive. Okay. Let's get going. Like we got a gig tonight. You know, it's like, right. So they, this work ethic thing. So I knew that the, the story would be huge if we played 30 shows in England in 30 days with every Thursday playing London and, and, and they, and the band did it. They be, that's also, I, I mean, it was my idea but, and I can't really take credit for them becoming such a great live band after that, but it just became a great live band. You're playing an, your set every day and you're playing in front of 10 people in Stoke-on-Trent. Yeah, you're like, a guru. You're gonna, like, you're in and you're gonna do it. And that really made the band a great live band. And in hindsight, that was a huge moment for that band to become, the, take the next level. Um, and so there's a lot of these little wacky things that I've come up with. It's the Queer Eyes for the Straight Guy reference where you're yeah. like this is what would be best for this band it's not a one size fit all at all it's right. coming up with something um there's not a playbook there is no playbook and the guys who try to do playbooks it never works right. um, and i've tried to play book before and i failed <laughs> you, you got to come up with something and andrew wk it's like we're gonna just do the craziest shit we can possibly do he's right. getting interviewed by larry king next week Jesus. Yeah. No, I'm sorry. I'm more impressed that Larry King's still alive. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Andrew's going to make him party on, 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 like on air. But yeah. Here's a big line of Coke. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Andrew's the best. And so, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's so much fun. Like when you, when you get to do that stuff, it's fun. It's the mundane stuff that gets crazy after a while. Like, okay, let's make a record. Let's set up the record. Let's go. So to what's something that you haven't done that you're really wanting to do now? I mean, you've done these different things, right? Is there something in your head back in the, in, in the depth of your, your gut when you go into work and you're sitting at your desk and you kind of spin out, look out the window and you're like, hey, like, I just wish I could blah this one thing or this I one. I think I want to have a label. When the label is the last thing anybody wants right now. And I think that there's a need for a farm system style label in my genre of music that I work in because... All these kids want to do is quit their job at Starbucks and go on the road. You know, you ask any six, 18 year old musician, I don't do, I just want to get on the road, man. And it's like, yeah, maybe that's not the best thing, but I've come up with an idea of a structure of how to do it where everybody wins. 
And then the idea is not to like, the idea is to upstream it into the big boys when it's time. And I think that, that there's a real need for that right well, so now. So you have to educate me. So yes. l- uh, by label, that is kind of like a holding company with a set of performance people in it. And you're, you're <laughs> this is how bad I am at knowing okay. things. So that's what a label is. It's kind of like, oh, like Def Jam Records had yeah. all these different acts in it. Yeah, yeah. So a, a label in general will give you, back in the day, they would give you living money in okay. advance yep. to, um, and then they would also pay for the recording of your record and hiring producers and making the record and also give you tour support to, so you can hire staff to go on the road. They basically pay for everything. And in return, they take a very high percentage of the music of the record sales. One of the five, one of the five income sources. So they put up all that stuff, but they're going to, they're going to get you on the other side. Correct. And then usually the musicians would just like eat a dick to, 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 to because they'll make the other four income sources. So they're like, okay, well the label pointed out, but now they stop making money. So now they want a piece of all of the income sources. And it's called the 360 deal and it's been around for years now. And and um and the other thing there's only three companies left. <clears throat> there's only Universal, Warner Brothers, and Sony. Wait a minute. There's three label Yeah, they own all the labels. They own okay, so they're like they're the the uh, I don't know what what that would be in the in the corp. They're like the the uh, Procter and Gamble that owns all the tons of different correct or, yeah. Unilever or exactly whatever exactly of. yeah. So so Columbia Records owned by Sony and Epic Records owned by Sony. RCA is owned by Sony. Universal has Capital and Island Def Jam or what now it's Island and Def Jam and Interscope and Universal Republic and Warner Brothers is Atlanta. But they all ladder up to these three Correct. folks. Correct, yeah. And each one of them have their own staffs and work records. But when you're a band and, and people want to sign you, they can't outbid each other. So you have three options. And if one of them doesn't want you and, and a couple of universal labels want you, they know they, know they can like, they can basically not outbid each other. So there's a ceiling to these deals and, and what's fair. It's open. It's not an open market to a certain degree. Sometimes that's what gets really frustrating, but there's also a few independents that are still around that, that do well, but not on this level and not on the like major, major level. And I think in people and and you know, these young bands and stuff are naive. They're like, just put it up, man. We can do it. Like do what Radiohead did. Well, if radio, <laughs> if you know, that's what every band wants to be Radiohead. Right. And, and in my world, and they don't understand if Radiohead didn't have Creep originally, Radiohead probably wouldn't be a band right now. Right. Yeah. You know? They and, always point to the exception, right? And go, yeah. that's what we want. But the exception was after the uh, after a, a hit song and the whole kind of thing. And, and so same with Pearl Jam. Same with these bands that are like these legendary bands now that, that can do things independently. Um, you know, I don't, there's very few independent bands that have actually done it. Like really truly independent bands, maybe Arcade Fire has been on a, is one, but they've signed to a major label now, so I don't know. But so your dream is to start a differently structured label to compete with the three big guys? No, it's it's to develop the things the right way, and then upstream, and then upstream and partner with the big guys at the right time with the right big guy for each artist. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 management on steroids management with money management with money that that's really what it is and that's what it used to be 
That's what labels used to be back in the day, is they would help develop things. Major labels don't have time, and they, they don't see the win on it either. They're like, we're just going to wait, you know? We're just going to wait for something to actually start happening, and then spend. it'll be better for us to spend more money on something that has momentum than try to start something from the beginning. Was your dad an entrepreneur too? Yeah. What did he do? He was, um, I grew up in the Silicon Valley, and um, they moved out. Um, he was a salesman um, from Chicago in the late 60s. So it was all apricot orchards in Los Altos. That's right. And so they bought one of the model homes so they, on a cul-de-sac. It was like literally a model home on a cul-de-sac. And it was like, this is what the town is going to be like. It was... Uh, like right you know, out of Fallout. Yeah. yeah, Back to the Future, you know, yeah. they know with the uh, part. But, um, and so um, he ended up uh, getting fed up and opening his own um, copy machine and fax machine dealerships uh, where they were dealer and and it was very successful for you know he had full warehouses and um supply you know the guys who would go fix uh, copy machines uh, a funny thing is uh my family was very religious growing up and he came home from church one time i was 16 and uh he's like pete stay in the car okay uh-oh what's what's wrong and he drives around he goes you're not going to be a musician that's <laughs> what he said to me. And I said, what do you mean? I'm really good. I'm really good, dad. Like, you know, I'm better than everybody in this, this stupid little town. I'm good. No, what's going to end up is you're going to be working for me someday, fixing copy machines. You know, that's what all the guys that work for me are, are these guys who are gigging at night and, you know, putting toner in <laughs> during the day. And he told me that. And, and, um, that puts I, the biggest chip on your shoulder ever, probably. Totally. And then he died a year later, a year and a half later of pancreatic cancer. So it, it, it was, um, I think if he didn't pass away, I'd probably be in San Francisco um, in some band being like, dude, what's up? Fucking weed. I'm going to make it, bro. <laughs> like, I probably would have been that guy. So do you feel like, wow. So do you feel like, um, I mean, because I had a similar situation in my life, um, where my mom kind of cast me into like, this is what you're going to do. You're going to, she's like, you're just going to, you know, why don't you just cut hair? That's about what you could do. Just cut (laughs) hair. And I was like, what? And I cut hair. Yeah. She just was like, I was failing at school and I was failing all this stuff. And she was like, do you want to just go be a hairdresser? That's pretty much what you, and I was like, are you fucking kidding me? I, I'm going to show you like, it was a very, like, you have got to be kidding me. You cannot stick me in that. Yeah. And it sounds like it was well. It's a combo of both similar. because it was it was com- I think it was out of he had never done that before, and when he got sick, it was a lot of love, and, and he, there wasn't there was never yeah, that kind of conversation him. again. But that stuck with me, and then the kind of living up to my father's like being an entrepreneur and and being successful and kind of doing being his own boss and you know doing that was a huge drive for me too. It always has been. Can't. How long ago did he die? Well, I'm 41 and I was 17. You so, were 17. Yeah, it wow. was the it was book day, which is I went to a Catholic school, so you had to buy your books, and it was book day, which was like two or three days before the start of senior year of high school. Um, you know, they they had given him. This is a funny story. He he um. I was working at Baskin Robbins. <laughs> I worked at ice cream place yeah. once. Yeah. And um, I, ju- you know, I just finished my junior year of high school. I was going to my senior year. And for some reason, the hottest girl in the senior class, who I thought was the hottest, came in that day to Baskin Robbins. What was her name? I don't remember. Oh, I 
can't, I can okay. see her face though. Short blonde hair. Um, God, I can't remember her name. Anyway, she came in and I had a huge crush on her. And I, I'm like, what are you doing tonight? We went out that night and ended up kissing her at this party that night. I was like, man, this is great. Oh my God. Oh, Magic. A year, a year older than me and she's going to college. Oh man, this is going to be the best summer ever. And I come home from that party and my mom sits me down and says, I have, you know, you know how dad wasn't feeling well? I'm like, yeah, he, he went and had some tests and it's serious. I'm like, well, what do you mean? He's like, he's got cancer. Um, I said, well, what's, what's, what's next? He's, he's like, chemo or I don't know what and she's like no no he's got pancreatic cancer what's that it's like well they've given him six months to a year to live like that's it like no that's I've never heard of this before like you you gotta like try right and and so it totally messed me up and the next morning my dad came in and this big he's an Italian immigrant and he's a big guy that grew up in Chicago and he came in just like wept and told me that um how old was he when he told you he was 60 and, uh, and so he told me and it was v- very emotional and six weeks later he was dead. Six weeks. So yeah. Um, six weeks yeah, later. Yeah. And the first week he went to work, the second week he stayed at home, but was making it from end to end on the house. This third week he was kind of making it halfway through the house. Fourth week he was in bed and fifth week he was like, a vegetable, like it, like became like started shrinking, like physically shrink. It was just ate him alive. I mean, it's it's incredible. What were you doing those three, those six weeks? Losing my mind, losing my mind, like freaking out. Yeah, it was it was. Uh, it took me years to get over, or to like deal with it. You know, you're 17. Wow. You don't know what's going on, and and you know i was in a band and i was getting laid and i was the guy you know so, uh, you know i was back were, were you were you actually <laughs> <laughs> that's your lower back tattoo yeah um were you, i mean were you present i mean cuz if when i'm 17 i'm not present oh and... i was very present it made you that makes you become very present and i think what my point was if that I really grew up really fast yeah. and I really saw, started seeing things a lot differently. I wasn't like, I was 17, loving life in a band. Like I didn't even have my driver's license. They called me backseat Pete because I didn't have my driver's license. I wouldn't even get my driver's license because why should I? I'd have more fun not having my license. So I never had a license. My friends would come pick me up and I was the lead singer of a band, you know, like partying in all the schools and and now, now you're a father figure for, for bands. Oh, yeah, in a weird way, yeah. Right? Oh, my God. Never thought of it like that. <laughs> <laughs> you just shrunk me. Yeah. Um, that's, that's... Yeah, it's, that, that mo- you know, these, there's moments in your life that, that are the defining moments. And, and um, I'm going through one right now. First time in, like, maybe since then where I'm like, it's a big change in my life. The, the divorce? Yeah. The, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's heavy. It's really heavy. So, it's, it's, those are super defining, right? Yeah. I went, I started having headaches. I tell you about that? No. I, I started, we, I moved out and I started getting really bad headaches out of nowhere. Never had that happen before. So I go to the doctor. And I, I don't go to the doctor. I've never, I mean, I've been a doctor in 20 years. I don't, you know, like I'm you're the only guy. You're not going to feel my balls again, are yeah, you? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I pick this guy and I walk in and he, he's like the great, he just says to me, he goes, 
I don't practice Eastern medicine. I don't practice Western medicine. I practice factual medicine, just so you know. I'm like, I like you. This is, <laughs> we're going to be cool, right? You're going to tell me right. straight shit. Thank God. Yeah. And so he said, I said, what's going on? And I tell him about these headaches. And then he says, um, well, you, um, um, he says, uh, one of, wait, he said, the most stressful thing on a human being is losing a child. Number two, he goes, these are facts. That's what he says to me. He's like, these are facts. Number two is um, losing a spouse. And number three is going through a divorce. Have any, are any of these happening to you right now? And I'm like, yes, number three. And he goes, okay. Um, and then he said, um, diseases and problems that you have in your body are like, I forget, like I'm paraphrasing here, uh, are 80%, exacerbated 80% um, by stress. And, and he says, the only thing that is the only cure for stress is um, meditation. And, and he's like, that's a fact. I'm not like, I'm not some Eastern weirdo, you know, I don't, I'm not playing hacky sack. <laughs> <laughs> hacky sack. And, and, and so, uh, uh, and so he, he's like, people like you don't like to meditate. I'm like, no, I can't. I never even thought about it. It would drive me crazy. I got something for you. He brings a little device and you put it on your ear and it, 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 it's like, it's basically a meditation video game with, with software. What's the name of it? EM wave two. Okay. Right. It's on Amazon, whatever. It's a couple hundred bucks and you put it on your ear and it goes through software and it, 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 it detects your heart rate and whatever. And it tells you, and, and it bongs. So you close your eyes. It's like transcendental kind of meditation. Well, no, it, every five seconds it goes, if you're really stressed out, it goes bong. And then it would, the more, the more you breathe, the more you chill oh, it out. it only bongs when you're stressed out? No, no, every five seconds oh, it bongs. Oh, every five seconds, you said and then, that. And then it yeah. bongs at a higher pitch once you start being less stressed out by your heart rate or whatever, it, whatever oh, it's, it's monitoring. it's training you to calm it's down. It's training you. Yeah, it's like a video game. Yeah. And, and, and so then it goes bong. And then if you're like better, it's bong. And you want to keep there, bong. And you're like sitting there waiting for it. And so I did it. Huh. Shit went away. You're kidding. How long did it, how long did you, is the session? 20 minutes. Wow. I bet like, and I did it every day. What happens to you after about 10 minutes of doing it? Cause it's probably the first 10 minutes you're like, like trying to, you're very, you're like gaming, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, the first couple times you do it, you're like, this is full of shit. And so you start thinking about something stressful and then it starts <laughs> dipping. It really does. Boom. You're back in the box. And so, okay, this thing's real. You know, you want to test it. Of course. Like, divorce, divorce. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Ah. And then, um, and then it goes up and then, yeah, you, you kind of just, you feel physically your body starting to let go. Mm. And that was all I was for me. I didn't, you know, my friend who's the painter meditates a lot. And he talks about like, if when he gets really heavily, he sees colors, he sees paintings. Like he's in, he's in. And he's, he's a great guy. I mean, he's, he's the real deal. Well, he's visual, so that's what he yeah, do. Yeah, so he, he loves it. He yeah. tries to meditate every day. And he says, when you get really into it, you, it takes you there. And, and so... I just looked at it as a, as a, something to help me cure what was going on. And it worked. You know, I have to confess, I've been kind of perving out on meditation just because most of the other podcasts I listen to, you know, like whether it's Duncan Trussell or, um, uh, you know, even, uh, Joe Rogan's or, 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 uh, Chris Ryan's podcast. Some of these guys will talk about transcendental meditation or meditation. And mm -hmm. then I started like Googling and I started looking at all this stuff and, and, and even my old mentor, who's actually going to be on the podcast soon. Um, Dan Gilmore, who's a writer in Arizona, um, 
you know, has, these are all people where meditation is just, it's always been kind of something that's there. And the truth of the matter of why I don't do it is I, that I finally figured out is I'm scared to do it. Like I know that there's a me down in deep ocean me that's like way down there. Yeah. That's not playing around in the waves at the very top of the ocean. That's yeah. not moving around way down deep yeah. that I think freaks me out. You know, I think it kind of, I think there's no way around. Me. Everyone has that. Yeah. I think it's a very natural thing to feel. I yeah. Think. To face yourself like in meditation. Oh, yeah. And recently it's not been fun. So is it, is, is that, how long into it are you? You've done it two or three times, four times, five times? <laughs> uh, I've been doing it months, but recently I've stopped doing it because I'm like, ah, I feel better. I'm not doing it. So uh, yeah. then I did it a couple of days ago. I'm like, what am I thinking? I went a couple of weeks without doing it at all. You know, because like, like, ah, my out. headaches are gone, you yeah. know? And then it's like, no, that was good. And then you start, and you start getting stressed out again. And you're like, okay, or I better, it's, it's that same old Dude, thing. It's the same thing. It's like me at the end of diets. I'm like, oh, cool. Yeah. I hit my body weight. Now yeah. it's time to eat a pizza. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's yeah. exactly right. And so it's that, and that, that's really the thing, even with musicians and everything, it's, it's consistency. And, and that's, that to me is like my new mantra is consistency. It's like, I've started working out. <laughs> I never worked out before. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden you're not going to get muscles like in a three weeks, it's not going to happen. And, and that's, that's the other thing I've been telling this to my bands and I'm not, I'm not uh, practicing what I preach, you know? And so now I'm like, wow, this, and now I'm like, I got, I got like a tricep. Where'd that come from? You know, like a bicep. Whoa. Like yeah. things are starting to like pop out a little bit and then you get excited, but it's been taking freaking eight months, but I am not going hardcore, but it, it, that sort of thing with bands too. It's the songwriting, making sure you're doing it all the time. You just never know. Like, it's that thing. You just never know. Like, it's it, you got to keep going. It's it, a muscle. Yeah. There's a band. You know, this is a funny story. There's a band right now that's having their biggest hit they've ever had, and they've probably had six albums out. And I and it's just, it makes you... Who it, is it? It's a band called Colbor Kids. Okay. And they, they came up with Airborne Talks event in the Silver Lake scene. There's all these bands kind of like in Silver Lake, a uh, part of LA that came out in about 2008, um, 2007, 2008. And they were all kind of there and, and they kind of had one, they kind of had one alternative hit at the beginning. And then they had, I don't know how many albums they've had since, three, four, five, I don't know. And now they have the song and they just kept going and kept going and kept going. And it's just like, it's amazing. And when that happens, you just like, damn it good for them you know it's like i'm like you just you keep going you can't like you can't if you are really the real deal you can't do anything else so just keep going and in, in, for creative people consistency is among the it's the, the hardest thing to it's do it's so hard right because you're you're setting up a, a an emotional or professional or occupational or spiritual movie set and breaking it down constantly because as a creator you want to yeah. build but then when you hit the apex of that you want to pull things apart to see what it is and see if it's real and start yeah. to deconstruct it and you just go on that roller coaster yeah. so to be consistent is and a lot of people are like I'm not feeling it man I'm not feeling it yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm gonna wait till I feel it it's like no you you may never feel it you have to just like stoke the fire and then the fire might come up when it I I had a, <laughs> went to, you know, I went to, I, I was a songwriting major in, in music school and there was a, um, a I had a lyric writing class and you're like lyric writing class. Oh God, somebody's going to tell me how to write lyrics. This guy was great. And his whole thing was you wake up in the morning and just go. You, and you have a pad next to you all the time. At any point, you just never know. 
and you're pulling things. Some of the best songwriters <laughs> recently, um, there's, there's a, there's an older gentleman named Mac Davis, and he's a, he's a very famous songwriter and probably doesn't get as much credit as he should. He wrote a little less conversation for Elvis. He wrote, um, in the ghetto for Elvis. Then he had a huge country cross. Maybe him and Glenn Campbell were the first and Dolly Parton were the first country crossover in the top 40 hits in the early seventies. He had his own variety show. Weird way. He's 72 years old. He co-wrote an Avicii single. He co-wrote, uh, he had a cut, he had a cut on uh, Bruno Mars recently, <laughs> 72 years old. Wow. This guy's not stopping. Damn. Right. And he's yeah. having this Renaissance. Right. And he's the chart most, char- you know, when a guy's a star, he's a, ch- he's always a star. He tells you the stories. So I went and met with him and he has a bag. <laughs> he has a, a, a satchel of paper of lyrics that he's had for years. And he just pulls out, oh, I remember that song. And he starts singing, I wrote that song in a hotel in New York in 1979. And it's a, some amazing song. And, and, and this artist I'm working with is starting to work with him. And he just is blown away. Like this guy pulled out a song that he forgot all about. He wrote in 1982. And it's, he's like, I'll play it for you. He plays it. And it's this unbelievable song. So you yeah, just the, never the know. The discipline of writing and, and, cre- and, and, being at that for yeah. so long. And you never know when something that you created a long time ago might come back and inspire you to finish it or inspire you to do something new. It's, it's just, it's just creating. I think there's a really important, and, and, and my friend Mike, who's the painter is like, he, ha, he, you know, he, he really hates being told what to paint because he gets hired to do real, oh, you know, yeah. and the money's just Commercial too crazy. installments or whatever. Totally. Yeah. You know, and, and, recently they told him it's too ha- you know you, you got to be make it more happy <laughs> we had dinner two nights ago he's like he's telling me to make it more happy and he said the guy he said well maybe if you turn it upside down and made a joke and it was really offensive to him Oof. yeah i hope he's not hearing us but <laughs> anyway <laughs> he's gonna lose a gig but but um but i get it i mean you're an artist like, you're trying to pour your soul on a canvas and someone's telling you to turn it upside down and make it more happy for me yeah yeah but i mean i think your point of of of, I mean, I, so I went to uh, to get a master's of fine arts and creative writing after undergrad. I actually went to go write, and hmm. I've learned a lot about writing, and it introduced me to a ton. Um, in the, I mean, in fact, I'd say I used that one skill of how to frame things and how to think about writing and in in business and in pretty yeah. much everything else that I do. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a it was a real huge part of my life. But anyway, um, I I quickly realized <laughs> how hard I actually also quit yep. because it, I realized, man, you've got to, like you said, just get up. And, and in fact, I, I remember I'm also a huge Maya Angelou um, fan and she made a huge dent in my life. And I remember hearing before she died an NPR interview with her where she, she would rent a hotel room mm. every day. Like she, there was a hotel room somewhere close to her house i guess mm-hmm. i'm gonna butcher this yeah someone can find it on npr and figure it out but yeah. and it's a great interview but basically it's something like she shows up at the, the hotel staff knows her it's her room at this hotel yeah. she shows up there every single day and she's got her pen and her paper and her everything's laid out in a specific typewriter and 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 that's her and it's a mm. window and that's her creative window every single day yeah. in that room Very out important. that window yeah and that's the structure that provides the um, ability for her to be unstructured and creative. Yeah. And it's very important. And, 
And it's funny because so many people in the world, when they think, how do you get successful like this? Or how do you yeah. do this? They don't understand that it's that consistency it of is. pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing. It is. And it's never like my son asked me when he was three or four. He was like, dad, scientists say Eureka and then what? <laughs> that's what he said. Awesome. And I was like, yeah, that's what you know, everyone out there thinks is yeah. like, there's a Eureka that hits you. Yeah, no, it doesn't. There is no Eureka. No, there isn't. It, it, it will happen, but in the middle of like doing something mundane or something that- Along pre Eureka. I have two, Eureka. two quick, yeah. pretty good stories. One um, is about Steve Wozniak. Hmm. Um, he's a massive music fan and he's a huge Airborne Toxic fan. And I've yeah. met him and become acquaintances with Woz uh-huh. over it. And he shows Was he on up, a Segway? Oh, well, oh, there's a great segue. Uh, you want me to, uh, I don't know if it's appropriate, but there's a great segue story. Okay, I'll go on a Waz right. story. Yeah. There's two Waz stories now. So um, the band's playing multiple nights to Fillmore in San Francisco. And um, my assistant um, comes into my office and says, hey, some guy just bought, you know, 24 of the live DVDs of the Airborne Talks event. And he shows it to me. I'm like, what? And he shows me the bill and says, Steve Wozniak, Los Gatos. And I say, um, you know who that is, right? And he goes, no. <laughs> I go, you know who Job, Steve Jobs is? Like, of course. They started like, Apple together. Yeah. And I'm like, oh God, poor Woz, man. I, I, you know, he's the guy. Like yep. to me. He and is growing, the guy. And, and growing up in Los Altos, he's a god. He is a guy. Probably in your world. I mean, in the town, you know, I grew up a quarter mile away where they built the first computer, right? So growing up in the 80s, as a kid of the 80s, and, and he's a god. So anyway, I found out at that moment, I'm like, he must be a huge Airborne Toxic fan. So then he buys pre-sale tickets through us. And so I have his email address. So I email him and I say, hey, thank you, Waz. For, I'm a, you know, I grew up in Los Altos. You know, this is me. And so he, he says, oh, I would, I would have given you free tickets. He goes, I know I would never do that. And he replies back. <sighs> so cool. And, and I said, well, I would love for you to meet the band. The lead singer went to Stanford. The, the guitar player went to Berkeley. Like, you know, like it's a thing. It's your hood. You know? Yeah. yeah. And he goes, I would love that, but please don't put him out of the way. I'm like, no way. You, we've got to come back. So he comes backstage. He brings him a gift. Um, through the years, he brought him different gifts. And one time he gave him a gift. And it was a box with a switch on it. And I'm like, what is this? And he's like, it's a cell phone jammer. It'll jam anything within 100. It's totally illegal. I made it for you guys. Enjoy. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> you know? You're like, oh. He goes, you can jam the whole club right now if you want to. You know, it's oh. That whole thing that he is about, right? And he's telling all these stories. And anyway, but um, um, I forgot the other was story. The whole reason I was going to tell this thing Um. I forgot too. Uh, anyway, but I want that jammer. Yeah, I know. We, the band lost it, of course. You no. know, because it goes on the tour bus. You lose everything on the tour bus. Take that on an airplane and see so, what happens. Um, oh man, I forgot what it was going to be. It was um, we were talking about. Um, oh man, wow, such a good Waz story. We were talking about. Uh, well, I was thinking that the other story I had, and maybe it'll, it'll remind me, is is discipline. Oh, this is what it was. So I, I end up having lunch with Waz. Me and Waz, when I come up for Christmas, the day after Christmas, we go and have, we go have lunch at a pizza place in Cupertino. And I'm like, I just got to, like, well, I want to hang out with you. And um, the best, right? And so at one point I say, hey, did you ever have to go somewhere to create? And he goes, why did you, why do you say that? I'm like, because you're, you're like built like my musicians. You're all over the place, man. Your head's going a million ways. You're, you're super creative on how you think about things. You're really he's really a musician and I understand why he likes music so much. It's very, his brain is built like a musician, Hmm. like the way he talks, the way he thinks, the creative things. He's, he's just so quick. And he, and he said, uh, that's, 
that's interesting you said that because I had a project that I had to finish. And so I got a hotel room in uh, Arizona and only my assistant knew where I was because I didn't want anybody to know where I was. And, but I wanted to be close enough in case of emergency, I could fly back really quickly. So I stayed in this hotel room for X amount of days and uh, I came out and I, you know, came out and I invented the universal remote control. <laughs> and I remember this story like it was like, you know, this was a couple of years ago and, and his brother was sitting next to me and, and he looks at his brother and he goes, yeah, but I messed it up because uh, when the battery ran out, you had to reset the whole thing. So there's all these recalls on it. <laughs> That's classic. Well, I was like, this guy's amazing. Like, but he's wired just like a musician. Yeah, he reminds sure. me of all these guys. And the other story, I, and so that discipline thing was there where he, he had to go somewhere, get away from everybody, put himself in an environment to finish you know, to create, to create. Yeah. And, and the other one, the other discipline thing w w that I learned very young, this is before my father died in eighth grade. I was a really good basketball player. Um, I was slow, but I could sink a shot anywhere. And I was really, I was good. And when I went to high school, um, I got cut from the, from freshman tryouts. I got cut hmm. and, and they had a lot of fresh, they had two freshman teams, you know, and I got cut. Out of 40, you know, I couldn't, couldn't even make it. And I was sick that week and I wasn't kind of trying. And I was like, I'm going to make it. And I'm like, whatever. And there were kids that sucked, that, that had no natural talent, but had worked so hard. I didn't work at all over the summer. I didn't even try. I didn't do anything. And that was a huge, huge lesson to me. It was like, and one guy made the varsity team his sophomore year. I'm like, that guy sucks. Like, I don't understand. Like, how could this guy, there's a varsity team as a sophomore. That should be me. I have way more talent. This guy, he just worked harder than everybody. And that was one of the biggest lessons I ever learned that talent, if you're talented, you're truly talented and you work really hard, that's when you're going to be successful, really successful. And you can still be really successful without the talent. Yeah. <laughs> but in, in the arts, it's like you have to have that spark. But if you're not willing to go and all do the, the way, work, do yeah. the work. And sometimes, and, and, with artists, the whole reason they want to do it in the first place is because they don't like working. So it's one of the hardest things to get them to do is to really have that discipline and motivation to do the shit they hate to do. Even if it's a meet and greet, even if it's this, even if it's, you know, getting up and writing lyrics every day, even if it's touring or whatever they need to do. Yeah. They, Some, it, that makes all the sense in the world. Yeah. So that's part of the, my gig too, is to try to get that. Well, you're, and it sounds like you're just in the biggest uh, you know, earlier we were talking a little bit about maybe not knowing some stuff is changing around you because every hour you're still kind of waiting at the airport kind of a thing yeah, and yeah. then you get deep into it. The interesting thing about, um, about, about you and I could say the same thing about me, although I think we're in different stages of this is that, uh, you've got huge chapter change things happening around you that probably, um, that are probably really hard to see clearly. You know, you've got this yeah. meditation thing that's changing you. Yeah. You've got this fitness thing that's that's yeah. connected to that fitness thing. Yeah. You've got this, you know, you've got, yes, you're kind of going out of one relationship and changing, you, you know, you get to redefine your points of view on so many different things yeah. in the world. Um, and, and, and I think it's probably going to affect just everything, including your work and, and all of it. And then there'll be that point when, you know, finally you do get on the plane and you're like, Jesus Christ, I can't believe I just went, you know, all yeah. of those things just happened. It's yeah. exciting. It's really cool. Yeah. I don't, I'm not, 
I think the moral of this whole podcast is as long as you feel it in your nutsack, it's the right thing, right? <laughs> <laughs> thank god you brought it back to balls oh, yeah well that's i mean that's kind of what you know but but that's the thing it's like it's like if you if you feel it in your gut like i, I you know these things are happening right now and i you have to submit to it you also have to be aware of it and you also have to be kind of pushing yourself but also being a completely aware that that's of what's going on and admitting it Admitting shit to yourself is my new, my new mantra. It is tough. Oh my God. The deepest, darkest problems you have and admitting that you're fucked that, up. That you're the one that's, you're the one that's doing it. There's nobody to point to other than you. Oh God. That's just even, <laughs> look at how I'm sitting right now. Yeah, I know. Well, I know. And, and, and taking care of people for so long. That was something that I've, that's part of my job my marriage and everything was taking like this, this thing of, you know, almost putting them, putting other things first and instead of yourself sometimes. And, and there's something. You run from yourself. Yeah. Yeah. There's something very honorable, honorable about it. And there's something, you know, good about it. And that's, that's a good thing because I think everyone's so, is so, especially in, you know, the next, these generations now are just the, the me and generation that there's, something I rebelled around that. I really hate posting photos of myself on Facebook. I hate that stuff. I can't handle it. And I think it's very just ridiculous. I, I find it to be almost, I had a long talk with Andrew WK about this. Um, he finds that people posting photos of their children is like not cool. And, mm -hmm. and he thinks that like, can you imagine when you're 15 and there's a photo that's on the internet when you're three pooping yourself it's like <laughs> like i would be devastated you know he puts himself in the in the eyes of the, but i don't like it because i just think it's this like this self it's search for affirmation yeah, yeah. and the, and the, and they just and everyone buys into it and i mm -hmm. can't handle that it, it really and so i went the opposite way with it and i'd rather and, and my life has been about trying to help people and stuff and that, and then in the, in the, on the flip side, I totally like ignored like, yourself, ignored myself it, it, to a certain degree yeah. and, or put band-aids on things and didn't, you know, it's like, oh, I can do that, that later. That was, that was not easy. Yeah. Well, um, Pete, I, I'm, I'm thankful to, I'm thankful to have you as a, as a newer friend actually. Ah, cool. And, Thank uh, you. you. You're always so fascinating to listen to. And well, you uh, are too. this is amazing. Thank yeah. you for having me on here. This is an honor actually to be sitting in this amazing room. Now, for everybody out there listening to this, this is some real deal shit here, just so you know. Like I work in, the, you're not gonna have any music industry guys probably come in that nope, often. It'll be you. Yeah, I mean, this is like, uh, I walked in, I'm like, what? This is pro. This you, is oh, great. you like the setup? Love the setup, it's vibey. You got proper mics, you got proper preamps. These teched out. It's really nice. It's if only I knew how to use this shit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we did go like four or five starts and stops, but yeah, we, it's all right. I'll get the hang of it. Eventually. I'll get some crazy one of my one of my uh, engineer friends in here. I'd love that. Yeah. Well, you have to have you get back on again too. Oh, but I would love for you to have some of my guys on because that that would be great. Andrew, Mikel, yeah. like all my all my you know some of my artists would be great to have on here. I'd, I'd love that, and you know it's funny. And Mike, I, my 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 painter friend, you have to have. Oh really? Oh, oh that'd be awesome. He's the best. Yeah. Oh, that would be awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Cool. So thank you Thanks, for having Pete. me. It's really an honor. Thank you.